open your Bibles now or flip just to chapter six in the book of Judges. Rather than go to Hebrews, we're gonna just stay in Judges this morning. If you're new to Manoa Community Church, we've been going verse by verse through Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith, looking at the various um, saints of old, the elders of old as they're called presbyteros, these different elders in the old covenant who were raised up by God and their faith was exemplary. And we're in verse 32 today where there is a line that basically says as follows, and what more shall I say? I'll put it on the screen for you. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And he just goes on and on. He starts rattling off all of these names. And here's what I want to tell you. We got time. (laughs) Author of Hebrews had a different purpose, which was he's going quickly through all of these characters, but we're actually using Hebrews 11 as a way to sweep through the old covenant quickly and get the various stories quickly and learn from their faith. And so these four characters will now inform the next mini-series we're in on the book of Judges. And so today is a preaching, a sermon on Gideon. That's right, Gideon. And Gideon is one of the 12 judges. And uh, was already read there, the intro to the Judges. The, the book of Judges is a, mm, it's kind of a hard book to read. I'll just warn you. Uh, it's not one you want to read with your kids at, at bedtime, all right? Because the book of Judges, we see them descending into greater anarchy as the people of God becoming more and more unfaithful. And even some of these judges, though they're heroic and filled with the Spirit of God, they have major character and moral flaws. So even as we look at Gideon today, we're going to look at the highlights of his faith. But like us, there's some low points that you don't want to imitate in Stephen's life nor Gideon's. So be careful when you read the Bible, just say, hey, just be like so-and-so. You can always be like Jesus, all right? And you can imitate Gideon's faith at its high points and David, but David, as we'll see, had his moral flaws as well. So I just want to put that disclaimer at the front of this sermon series. But Gideon has some powerful moments of faith in his life, which we're commended to look at his life and say, wow, look how God used this weak, small man, Gideon, to bring about great victory in the world. You can pull that slide down now. And so when Gideon is called in this, I'm just giving you an overview of judges now, these 12 judges, there's basically this spiral where they worship false gods and they give themselves over to the Baals and the Asherah poles and the high places. And then they groan out because oppressors come. The, the nations come and they start to oppress the people of God and they groan out and we say, we were foolish and sinful, we're sorry. What you? And then God sends a deliverer and they repent. They kind of snap out of it, and then God gives them victory. And when you think of these judges, don't think of the guys wearing the black gowns or the ladies wearing the black gowns with the gavels, all right? Those kind of judges. That's not what we're talking about. Just think more like Braveheart. Have you guys ever seen Braveheart? Where they were like, this is more like these clan-like periods. They're not fully into a nation yet. In fact, one of the refrains in the book of Judges is in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Which sometimes it feels like when people shun Jesus as king, that's what's happening around us as well, right? But in those days, there was no king. These tribes are kind of vying for power. And God will raise up these, these leaders uh, who will give them deliverance. And they will repent and follow him for a season and then turn away and the cycles through judges until God raises up a king, which we'll talk about later. 
All right, and so that's kind of an overview of judges. Today, we are looking at one of the judges. We are looking at Gideon. And so I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 of chapter 6 in Judges to see the call of Gideon. Pray for us. And today's sermon is entitled Faith in Weakness. If you're taking notes, the title is Faith in Weakness. Please follow along. It's on the screens and in your Bible, beginning in verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abirzerite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Push pause there for a second. The Midianites are basically plundering all of their food. They're taking all of their livestock wherever they come. The, the Israelites at this point are basically hiding in caves, and so they're fleeing. The Midianites are described like locusts. Locusts come and they consume everything in sight. So when we see him beating out the wheat in the wine press, he's, he's trying to get wheat to make bread, and he's hiding it from them so that he cannot starve, right? That's their seven years of oppression has just happened, and Gideon is trying to get some food for himself and his family. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. Faith in weakness. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for your perfect, inerrant, infallible word. And Lord, as we look at imperfect, fallible people in your imperfect word, Lord, I pray for wisdom and how to discern when to imitate them and when to learn our mistakes from their mistakes as well. And yet as we look at the life of Gideon this morning and at the season of the judges, this, this era in our history, Lord, I pray, God, that these lessons would still instruct our faith this morning, especially this unlikely hero, this man who said, I'm in the weakest clan and I'm the least in that. And yet that's precisely the kind of people you like to work in and through. And so, God, I pray for each one of us, if we are here feeling weak this morning, if we are feeling as we are the least in the kingdom of heaven, that's exactly where you want us to be because that's exactly where your grace meets us. And so, God, I pray that your word and your spirit would now impart the very faith that we need that in our weakness, we, like Gideon, would see your deliverance and victory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. See if you recognize this song. How does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire, leave the battlefield waving Betsy Ross's flag higher? Yo, 
Turns out we have a secret weapon. An immigrant you know and love who's unafraid to step in. He's constantly confusing, confounding the British henchmen. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman, Lafayette. You guys know that one? All right, you gotta see it if you didn't see it. There is some foul language in the... (laughs) And also the heroes of America's founding, by the way, had all of their own moral faults. And yet we look back at them. That is from the Hamilton 2015. Great, tells the story of the founding of our nation. And Alexander Hamilton, by the way, was an unlikely hero. This was an orphan. His parents weren't married. Uh, He was impoverished in the Bahamas or in that area and then somehow finds himself being sent to an affluent school and raised up and eventually becomes one of those who defends the Constitution and helps break us away from oppression, so to speak, and taxation without representation. And one day we become our own independent nation. Unlikely heroes. People who you say, you look at them, you say, how did that ragtag army defeat a global superpower? And in today's text, as we look at this life of Gideon, it plays out in some similar ways because we'll see some of the most famous stories in Gideon's life where he's both the least and the smallest, right? He's one of the weakest clan, but also when he comes against this mega superpower who you can't even count them, they're like sand on the shore with tens of thousands of people, God actually winnows them down to less and less and less, and they still win. That's the story of Gideon, and many of you are familiar with this story, but if not, we're going to do a high-level sweep through the book of Judges this morning and get some of the highlight reels of Gideon's life and see how God works through weak people. Gideon is a weak man, but Gideon is victorious through the grace of God. Amen? There's three things we'll discover from faith and weakness this morning. If you're taking notes first, faith and weakness rebuilds true worship, secondly, lays out the fleece, and thirdly, boasts in the Lord. Again, rebuilds true worship, lays out the fleece, and boasts in the Lord, beginning with rebuilds true worship, which will be the longest of our readings. But I want you to follow along in your Bible, starting in verse 25, or look at the screens if you don't have a Bible open. So in chapter 6, we've just looked at the call of Gideon. The angel has called him. And that night, this is where he launches into his public ministry and leadership, so to speak. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, that's a false god, that your father has, and cut down the Asherah, that's a pole, that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. And the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash, this is his father, says, 
said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Meaning, will you defend Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If, if he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel, that is to say, let Baal contend against them because he broke down his altar. Faith and weakness first rebuilds true worship. Now again, remember in the book of Judges, we are introduced to the people of God, but they don't look like the people of God. They don't look like the church. They look like the world. They look like everybody else. They start worshiping the false gods of the, of the land, the Baals, the Asherah poles, and that's exactly where he's crying out, saying, God, I heard of all the victory. I heard how you brought us out, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Where are you, God? And God says, I'm gonna use you. I'm gonna use you to bring deliverance from the Midianites against this oppression. But the first thing he has to do is he has to restore their worship back to the true God. Because they had built an altar to Baal, this false god, in this Asherah pole. And this is what he does. He deconstructs and reconstructs with the same materials the false religion to put back his faith and their faith as well. Do you see it? He takes the stones and he pulls them down. And the very pole, this wooden Asherah pole that they worship, the false gods of fertility and all these things, that becomes the wood that they burn the bulls on unto the Lord. Because remember, this is before the temple in Jerusalem. They did have the tabernacle before, but they're all just kind of making their own little world religions up on the high places. And so they're building their own altars and they're doing their own thing. They've kind of abandoned the tabernacle at this point. And so they're kind of just building their own religions. And he says, no, that is not how this deliverance will work. We have to get our hearts right with the Lord. So he takes those stones down. Keep in mind, look at the text. This was his father's altar. Did you notice that? This was his family's. This wasn't like just the, the uh, you know, the temple in town. And he's going and kind of throwing glass or throwing a stone through the stained glass or something. That's not what's happening. This is his family's false altar. His dad, Joash there, that's, that's their altar. And he goes to this high place and he deconstructs this false religion, reconstructs it, puts it back together, sacrifices at night. By the way, talk about faith and weakness, right? This is something he knows God's called him to do it, but he's so afraid to follow through. He does it under the cover of night. It kind of reminds me in the New Testament uh, where at night, one of the, uh, from the Sanhedrin comes to Jesus at night and he says, we know you've come from God, Nicodemus says, because no one would do the works that you're doing if God wasn't with you. But Nicodemus comes in the cover of night. Why? He doesn't want to be exposed by the other Sanhedrin, the peer pressure, all of that is at play. Uh, at the end of the Gospels, Nicodemus, a secret follower of Jesus, goes public, defends Jesus. He's one of the heroes with Joseph as well. But at this point, just like our hero in today's text, he's afraid. And yet God still honors his faith to follow through at night. And in the morning, what I love in this story is that the town at first they're ready to throw him under the bus. They're ready to sacrifice. They're ready to, to kill him. And who intervenes for him? His dad does, doesn't he? The very same dad that he just destroyed his altar and Asherah and burned it says, if Baal's a god, let Baal defend himself. 
right? And all of a sudden, they go from wanting to kill him, Gideon, saying, this guy's got a backbone. Maybe he's our leader. <laughs> it tells you something about the importance of being an outlier sometimes in life, that you choose the unpopular road, so to speak, and at first there's a resistance. Then you realize, no, no, God is raising up a deliverer through this individual. So at first they want to kill him. Dad, whose very altar has been deconstructed, reconstructed, now is following his son's faith back to the true worship of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's a powerful story, isn't it? Of this village that's ready to stone him and then they're ready to lay down their lives for him in their deliverance. And so we see here that faith and weakness, and this is a recurring theme through the book of Judges, it starts with repentance. It starts with turning back to the true worship of the living God as revealed in scripture, his faithful deeds throughout his past deliverance, saying this is the God that I love. This is the God that I worship. You know, in all false religions, of course, as Christians, we only believe there's one way, one truth, one life in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen? Jesus is the only way. But even in the true religion, sometimes things need to be deconstructed and reconstructed as well. I think of Jesus when he ste stepped into the temple, right? The temple mount, and all of a sudden he saw all of them selling the goats and the chickens and all, you know, all the animals, the pigeons and the doves. And he starts flipping over the money tables, they're selling the sheep for the sacrifice. He says, get this out of here. This is not a merchant place. This is not a store. This is a house of worship for all God's people. And he cleanses the temple, doesn't he? And as we as believers, we have to constantly look, even when we're faithful and saying we're trying to be in the church, are we staying true to God? Or are there tables now being set up and we're turning into a marketplace, or these other things become a distraction, or they're keeping people out of worshiping the true and living God to dismantle those things and find ourselves faithful. Again, we are a reformed church, and if you don't know what that means, take the vision tour. Uh, you'll get to learn what it means. Reformed and always reforming, right? Sempra reformanda, right? We always want to go back to the word of God and say, did we get this right? Is this accurate? Is this right? And make sure that our worship is based on God and his word because layers of tradition over time can cloud over and tape over and we miss it. And so we as believers in every generation have to repent again. Every generation we have to say, God, Help us to follow you faithfully and sometimes deconstruct and reconstruct so not so that we abandon Jesus, not so that we go another way or off the rails, but sometimes we find that other things have attached themselves to Jesus that aren't really about Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's just all sorts of things. This, I mean, this is another sermon for another day, right? <laughs> but to deconstruct and reconstruct to make sure that we're worshiping Jesus and that Jesus isn't simply some token God for whatever thing that we want, politically speaking or otherwise, in the world, that we're really about the Great Commission. We're really about reaching all the nations. We're really about every nation, tribe, and tongue. We're really about the heart of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do it as weak people. The kingdom of heaven is given to weak people. The whole New Testament is about complete reversals. 
The last shall be first and the first shall be last. So we are not a people going after strength and power. We are people in weakness seeing God meet us to worship the true God. Amen? First, faith in weakness rebuilds true worship. Secondly, faith in weakness lays out the fleece. Faith and weakness lays out the fleece. I love this story. If you haven't heard it, it's an excellent one. Let's pick things up at verse 36 of chapter six. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew for the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. So if, you hear, if you're new to the Christian faith, when people talk about laying out the fleece, you're like, what are you talking about? You need the decoder ring? I'm giving it to you under the second point right now. This is the laying out the fleece, all right? This is what we mean by laying out the fleece with Gideon. You see, there's a double test that he wants to know that he's not presumptuous. That, yeah, I mean... God called me and I'm going to bring deliverance. That's not who Gideon is. In fact, earlier when the angel tells him he's called, do you know what he does? You can go back and look at it. He says, oh, I'm not sure this is real. He's probably thinking like, like that, you know, is this a mirage or what? He's like, let me, let me go and get a gift for you. Don't go anywhere. Remember, he's under the tree. I'm gonna go and he gets a goat and sacrifices it, some food and all this stuff. And he says, just wait, I wanna give this to you to make sure you're here. So he goes, he prepares it, brings it back, puts it on the stone. The guy says, sure, I'm happy to wait for you. (laughs) So he gets back, he takes his staff and then he touches it with his staff and all of the offering is consumed in fire and the angel disappears in the flames, right? (sighs) But what you see with Gideon is, uh, I gotta make sure right? I got to make sure that I'm not going bananas here, right? I got to make sure that I'm not making this up. I got to make sure that this angel is real. And I got to make sure even after I tore down the altar and everyone's ready to follow me, they are a big army and they will squash us like a bug unless God is really calling me. So he says, here's what I want to do, God. I'm going to put out this fleece on the threshing floor. That's like the wool fleece, right? Of sheep or whatever. And I want it to be wet, like not just a little wet, full of the dew of the morning. Everything around the grass is all dry. Because you guys remember when you wake up the other morning, the kids are like, wow, the grass is sparkly, daddy. Yeah, that's dew, right? It's sparkly. And so what does he do? The grass is dry, dry, dry. But the fleece, he picks it up, heavy, wrings it out, fills a whole bowl with water. He says, well... I don't know much about science. They're not thinking about science back then. I don't know, but I just want to make sure that that's not, I don't remember it working that way, but maybe fleece just absorbs all the water or whatever. God, can you flip it the opposite way? Tomorrow, I want all the grass to be wet and the fleece to be bone dry. And the next morning, fleece, nice and dry. Water, 
Very moist. All right, the double test work. I've laid out the fleece. I'm going. Sounds crazy. Our army's small. There's this huge, but God, you've called me to go. I am going. And there's something telling in this because there's a tension in the Christian life. Now, when Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus rebuttals him and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? He says, jump off from this cliff and he will carry you lest you strike your foot against a stone, right? And so he's, the, the devil knows how to quote scripture to test God, right? And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So there are times in our lives where, where we just need to obey God, right? Like when Satan is telling you to exalt yourself above all the nations and be worshipped, that is not a test that you should ever try to take, all right? Like you just shouldn't do it, all right? But other times, God does actually challenge us to test us. In fact, in Malachi, he tests us in giving. He says, put me to the test. See if I won't open the storehouse of heaven. So you never want to test God into disobedience. You never want to do that. But there are other times where you sense God is calling you to do something, but you don't want to be presumptuous. Do you know what I'm talking about, right? Where you just headlong jump in front and I need this, by the way, because I'm a ready, fire, aim kind of guy in my everyday life. Even before I was a Christian, it's like, miss the mark, try, do, 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 do. And so sometimes I need to slow down. And so laying out the fleece is this concept where we are asking God to confirm what we sense is from him. And how he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit and leads us, and certainly through the counsel of other brothers and sisters, I know David Frank, he's one of our ruling elders here at the church, one of our elders. If you wonder what a ruling elder is, come to the vision tour. All right. The Dakota ring for all these words. All right. He says, I always lay out the fleece, Stefan. That's, that's how I operate my life. I don't always lay out the fleece. My approach is normally, I just want to know the word of God really, really deeply and that sort of approach to it. But there are times in life where there's no Bible verse for what you want to do. And one of the examples I'll give you from my life is coming up to be pastor of Manoa Community Church because I was overseeing 90 clubs in the public schools of South Florida. So I was overseeing evangelistic clubs. I was kind of like a, a bishop to youth pastors is the best way I could describe it. I was networking all the churches, equipping them in evangelism, reaching thousands of kids. We were in 230 schools. We saw over 5,000 kids a year come to Christ. It was awesome. I was having a good time. I love evangelism. That was, I was, and I was working across denominational lines and I was a pastor in a mid-sized healthy church. When I, my brother said, hey, there's a pastoral position opening at Manoa Community Church. So over the summer, we visited incognito. Like we just popped in and visited quietly in the church, my family and I. And I started talking to the committee the search committee that was looking for a pastor. And Elder Chris McCaffrey, he's still one of our elders, was kind of the chair of that committee leading that. So I was calling him constantly. And he'll attest to this. It was hard to become your pastor because our denomination has a lot of checks and balances. No, I thank God for them because I've seen crazy things in the body of Christ. I've experienced crazy things in the body of Christ. Like they needed me to do a psychological evaluation. It's a good idea. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> Before you go to church, have you ever done a psychological evaluation? Yeah. 
but I had to pass like these four proctored written exams on our book of order, which is how we run our churches, the Bible, theology, church history. Um, I had to prepare a sermon from Greek or Hebrew and they wouldn't give me the text until I got, I mean, there was a lot of things I had to do. And I was still finishing up seminary. I had one more class I had to take. So I had to fly out to the seminary to squeeze in a class for the timeline to take the test over the Christmas break. I mean, there were so many things. And Chris and I talked and I said, God is gonna have to move mountains because the the committee wouldn't even hardly call me back. And they told Chris later, like, we've seen this a million times. Like, this, this, he's not gonna do what we're asking him to do, you know, because usually people are just transferring from similar churches and it's easy. But I sensed the Holy Spirit was calling me to do it. But my fleece was, if this doesn't work, like, if I do everything, one, I'm okay. I really was okay. I could stay. But two, God, you're going to have to move mountains. Literally all of these mountains. If I gave you the checklist, it was like, and I said, I'll punch through this. And if any one of these things doesn't work, I'm out. And once I got through the whole thing, I literally had to fly up. Wow. We had to put our house on the market (laughs) before we were sure that they were going to vote in the presbytery to let me in. All right. Oh, it was tricky. But we timed it all, and God, in his providence and grace, every step along the way, he confirmed it. Amen? But I never wanted to just sell my house, show up here, and, you know, and what are the things in your life that you sense God is calling you to? And what are those things like Gideon? You say, before I'm presumptuous, I believe you're in this. I believe you're speaking to me, God. I believe you're calling me to this. But wait, what does it look like to put out the fleece in your life? And that is not a sign of weak faith. We are weak people, but that is a sign of strong faith despite our weakness, waiting to make sure that we are not presuming on God. Amen? Amen. Faith and weakness lays out the fleece. That is the story that we see from Gideon's life. Finally, not only does faith and weakness rebuild true worship, lay out the fleece, but faith and weakness boasts in the Lord. Faith and weakness boasts in the Lord. I'm just going to read the first two verses of chapter 7, then I will tell you the rest of the story. Then Jerubbabel, remember that is Gideon, right? Because he was named after that, we'll... Will uh, Baal contend for himself? Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early in a camp beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of the excuse me, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, "The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me.'" lest the people boast over me and say, my own hand has saved me. At this point, you can look back up at me. I'll tell you the story, but keep it open to make sure I'm not playing fast and loose with the Bible. Midian has an army with camels that literally says it's like sand in the seashore. You can't even count them. You look over and it's just like a swarm of locusts. They just cover the landscape. And at this point, Gideon has his army. There are 32 thousand of them. Now that's a big army. Would you agree? It's not a small army. It's not hundreds of thousands. It's not even 50,000. So they are definitely outnumbered, outgunned. And what does the Lord say to Midian? Ah, you guys got too many people. 
This is the Lord's concern. He says, if you win this with 32,000 people, you're going to say, we did it. And God will not share his glory with them or anybody else. So he says, let's winnow this down. And so he says to tell the people, if any of you are fearful or trembling, return home. And so they lose 22,000 of them. They're like, yeah, we're afraid. Thank you. <laughs> and these brave 10,000 are like, yeah, we got this, you know, down by a third, you know, two thirds are out. But we, all right. I, they're either super brave or crazy at that point, right? They, they're winnowing down their army, and God says, Yep, yeah, that's still too many. I got another one for you. Go tell them to drink water in the river. And so he says, all right, y'all, go drink water. And if they kneel down, put their face in the water like this, and just drink right out of the fountain, that's one group. If they scoop the water down like this, cup it in their hands and bring it up and lap it up like this, that's the other. So the people who put their face in the water are 9,700 of the 10,000. So you take 9,700 out of 10,000, you have left how many people? 300. God says, that's the ratio I like to work with. Here we go, right? Does it sound crazy yet? How does a ragtag team, right, overcome a global superpower? You're going to see it in the book of Judges. And that night, God tells him, he says, go with your servant into the camp. Now, remember, they're swarming like locusts, camels everywhere. But out at night, they sneak into the camp, and they go to one of the campfires. And the Midianites are talking over the campfire. They say, I had a dream last night that this barley loaf like fell off of the field and flattened out our tents. And they're like, oh, it can only mean one thing. Like God is going to give us into the hand of the, of the Israelites and we're going to be squashed. And he hears that. He's like, oh my goodness. They are scared to death of us. They have no clue. There's only 300 of us. So he sneaks away. He says, guys, to the 300, this is what we're going to do. Take some pottery like a jar. Take your torch, all right? And go, and we're breaking up into three groups of 100. We're gonna surround this enormous group. Keep your lamp so they can't see it. And then when I shout out, for the Lord and for Gideon, right? You all do the same, and they have trumpets. And so they take the pots, and they lift up the torches all around the camp, and they blow their trumpets. Burr, burr, for the Lord, and for Gideon, in the middle, the dead of the night, when they're sleeping. And they all wake up. Bah! Oh my gosh, they are upon us. And they jump up in a frenetic frenzy, and they start to attack one another. And they obliterate themselves. <laughs> And they're running for their lives from 300 people with torches and pots that they threw on the ground. Talk about an unlikely hero. Faith in weakness boasts in the Lord. How does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? By the grace and power and leading of God. Amen? That's how that went down. Gideon. Yeah. Gideon heard from God. Gideon followed God. And here's the key point under this. God wants us to be weak 
so that we don't boast over him, but so that we boast in him. Do you see the difference? Because we get this wrong all the time. As Americans, we celebrate, and most people, we celebrate our strength, but the kingdom of God is upside down. There is a great reversal that God intends to do in the world so that he gets all the glory. He says that in our weakness, he is strong, and in the kingdom of heaven, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And so in our faith, in your faith, if you say, I am weak, the Apostle Paul, that's it. That's it. He is pleading because he is weak. He's got this thorn in his flesh. He pleads out to the Lord Jesus for three times. And the Lord Jesus says, no, that thorn stays there. You know why? Because in your weakness, my power and my strength are perfected. My grace is sufficient for you. Church, do you believe that? God's power is perfected in and through weak people. And the story of Gideon reminds us that the most unlikely heroes give God all the more glory. Jesus, on the cross, the one who cleansed the temple, when he cleansed it, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, you're bonkers, and they plotted to kill him. At his trial, they said, this man said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Heretic, get him, right? And on the cross of Jesus Christ, all the hordes of hell itself, Satan who tempted Judas Iscariot, right? All the powers of evil nailed Jesus Christ falsely to the cross to destroy God's temple. But you know what happened? In his weakness, the resurrection power of Jesus blew open the tombs. And the hordes of hell destroyed themselves on the cross. The very battle and enemies of God were their own undoing. They attacked themselves through the weakness of the Savior. His strength has come to you and me. And we follow the way of the cross, church. We are not a men and women of triumphalism. We are a men and women of weakness who triumph through our weakness. Amen?